Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 20. Last week, we did a quick trauma rapid review. Why don't we start out with a little hematology to get this week's episode going? What's the main treatment for TTP? TTP, that's treated with plasmapheresis. If plasmapheresis can't be performed expediently, FFP can be used as a temporizing measure. What reversal agents are used for life-threatening bleeds in patients on warfarin and for patients on aspirin? For any patient on warfarin with a life-threatening bleed, FFP, PCC, or recombinant factor 7A should be given. For a patient on aspirin with a life-threatening bleed, DDAVP should be given in addition to platelets. However, for intracranial hemorrhage, new evidence from the PATCH trial suggests that the platelets may actually increase the risk of death and dependence, so consider that before you order platelets for your next bleed. Great pearl, but back to the rapid review. What are the inheritance patterns for hemophilia A and hemophilia B? Both hemophilia A and hemophilia B are X-linked recessive disorders. Nice job. All right, why don't you get us started with the new material for this week? A 23-year-old presents with chest tightness after intranasal cocaine use. Vital signs are heart rate of 133, blood pressure of 155 over 95, and oxygen saturation of 95%. The EKG reveals sinus tachycardia with no ischemic changes. Which medication should be administered? Is it A, benzodiazepine, B, a beta blocker, C, a calcium channel blocker, or D, naloxone? Well, the answer here is definitely choice A, benzodiazepines. Cocaine leads to chest pain via two mechanisms. It both increases vasoconstriction and also increases myocardial oxygen demand. Benzodiazepines address both by not only relieving the vasospasm, but also decreasing the sympathetic surge, leading to a lower heart rate and blood pressure. That's right. Cocaine is a sympathomimetic agent, which can lead to all the classic features of the sympathomimetic toxidrome, like tachycardia, hypertension, medriasis, and diaphoresis. In severe cases, cocaine can lead to a combative, agitated, and even hyperthermic patient. The profound hypertension often seen increases the risk for hypertensive emergencies, leading to aortic dissection, intracranial hemorrhage, and myocardial ischemia or infarction. Our patient is clearly in danger for such complications with his profound hypertension and tachycardia. And just one more quick note about that. You said cocaine can lead to myocardial ischemia. This is important to remember as patients at risk for ischemia need a full ACS workup with serial troponins and serial EKGs and possibly even further testing. Cocaine also enhances platelet aggregation, so it's doubly important to administer aspirin in such cases. Great point. Let me quickly run through the other answer choices here. Choice B, beta blockers, should be avoided in cocaine intoxication as the unopposed alpha effects could worsen systemic and coronary vasoconstriction. Choice C, calcium channel blockers, are not necessarily harmful, but they don't have a specific role here. And lastly, naloxone, that's the agent of choice for opiate reversal, and it's not useful in cocaine overdoses. Nice. You're up for the next one. Which of the following is the most common type of migraine headache? Is it A, a basilar-type migraine, B, a migraine with aura, C, a migraine without aura, or D, ophthalmoplegic migraine? The most common type of migraine is definitely a migraine without an aura, choice B. That's correct. In fact, almost 80% of migraines are migraines without an aura. Most describe the headache as a slow-onset, unilateral, and pulsating headache with moderate to severe intensity, making day-to-day activity difficult. The classic migraine is associated with nausea, vomiting, photophobia, or phonophobia. Migraines are usually familial and affect women twice as often as they affect men. Although the exact pathophysiology is not clearly defined, migraines are thought to be due to vasogenic inflammation. 
Some people can point to an obvious trigger like menstruation, alcohol, or even certain foods like chocolate, cheese, MSG, and nitrates. All good points, but let's get back to the aura for a second, which is really the crux of the question. The aura of a classic migraine is usually a visual aura that develops acutely within 30 minutes of the onset of the headache. There are several common visual auras. Some describe scintillating scotoma, or a bright rim around an area of visual loss. There are also tychopsias, which are images perceived through open or closed eyes, fortification spectrums, which appear as zigzag walls drifting across the visual field, photopsias, which are poorly formed flashes of light, or simply blurred vision. And there are also non-visual auras as well. Some migraine sufferers report motor auras, like hemiparesis, ophthalmoplegia, or even aphasia. Others report sensory auras, like hemiparesthesias or dysthesias, or even brainstem auras, like vertigo or ataxia. So I think the take-home is that the most common migraine is a migraine without an aura. If the aura does occur, it can take many forms, but it's usually visual. Standard abortive therapies include triptans, dihydroergotamines, antiemetics, and NSAIDs. Prophylaxis may be required in chronic headache sufferers, typically with beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, or TCAs. And one last quick definition for you here. Can you define status migranosis? That would be a migraine that persists beyond 72 hours. It's usually associated with debilitating symptoms and may require hospitalization. That sounds just awful. Let's move on. A 59-year-old man is found naked under a bridge. He's unresponsive and doesn't respond to painful stimulation. His rectal temperature is 32 degrees Celsius. The patient is intubated, warm blankets are placed, and active internal rewarming measures are initiated. His temperature slowly rises to 35 degrees Celsius, but then begins to fall. Which of the following is most likely responsible for this phenomenon? Is it A, cooling of blood during cardiopulmonary circulation, B, equipment failure, C, paradoxical splanchnic vasoconstriction, or D, return of cold blood to the core from the periphery? So this question is clearly describing core temperature after drop, or choice D, the return of cold blood to the core from the periphery. This is usually a transient finding and aggressive warming methods should continue. And while we're talking about hypothermia, let's review some of the common warming methods. Active external rewarming includes hot air and warming blankets. Internal rewarming methods include bladder or peritoneal lavage, warm IV fluids, warm humidified oxygen, or even ECMO in extreme cases. Don't forget the first step, which is probably the most critical, removing all the cold and wet clothing. Great point. And while we're on the topic, do you know how hematocrit levels change in relation to hypothermia? I think they rise. That's right. You can expect a 2% increase in hematocrit for every 1 degree Celsius drop in a hypothermic patient. You're up next. Which of the following statements regarding drug exposure and overdose in pregnancy is true? Is it A, gastric decontamination with charcoal or whole bowel irrigation should be avoided in pregnancy? Is it B, iron crosses the placenta and causes direct fetal toxicity? Or C, most antidotes should not be given in pregnancy due to the risk of fetal harm. D, salicylate overdose is associated with poor fetal outcomes. Or E, the threshold to treat carbon monoxide poisoning is the same in pregnant and non-pregnant women. The answer here is definitely choice D. Salicylate overdose is associated with poor fetal outcomes. Exactly. Unionized salicylates cross the placenta because the pH of the fetus is slightly higher than the mother. This causes an accumulation of salicylates in the fetal blood. Unfortunately, the fetus cannot hyperventilate to compensate, causing an acidosis. Additionally, the salicylates displace bilirubin from protein binding sites, which may potentially cross the blood-brain barrier, leading to kernicterus. Lastly, salicylates inhibit prostaglandin synthesis, leading to closure of the ductus arteriosus. 
For all these reasons, just as in their non-pregnant counterparts, salicylate poisonings should be treated with gastric decontamination, urinary alkalinization, and in extreme cases, dialysis. Excellent review. And if you didn't know the answer here was choice D, you could also use a process of elimination to get there. Let's go through the other answer choices here one at a time. Choice A, GI decontamination with charcoal and whole bowel irrigation are both safe in pregnancy. For choice B, iron does not cross the placenta, so it only causes maternal and metabolic derangements. For choice C, which is concerning antidotes in pregnancy, there's limited data. In general, antidotes should not be withheld in the setting of pregnancy. To save the fetus, save the mother. And lastly, for choice E, which was on treating carbon monoxide poisoning in pregnancy, the threshold for initiating hyperbaric oxygen therapy in carbon monoxide overdoses is lower during pregnancy as the half-life of carbon monoxide is almost five times longer in the fetus than it is in the mother. And returning to salicylate poisoning for just a second, what are the indications for hemodialysis in salicylate poisonings? Well, there are a few, such as altered mental status, renal failure, pulmonary edema, rising levels despite alkalinization, coma, or clinical deterioration. Definitely important decision points to keep in mind, and don't forget that the Poison Center is always there to help. All right, next, we're moving to a quick ID question. Pay close attention since a lot of Rosh Review users struggled with this one. A 32-year-old woman with HIV presents for the evaluation of a headache. She denies fever, and her neurologic exam is normal. A CT scan of the head shows multiple ring-enhancing lesions with surrounding edema. Which of the following is true regarding this finding on the CT scan? Is it A, it's caused by reactivation of a previous infection, B, it's transmitted through dog feces, C, the CD4 count is typically less than 50, or D, the organism is a common cause of meningitis? All right, so here we have an HIV-positive patient with ring-enhancing lesions. This is definitely talking about toxoplasmosis. I know the cutoff is actually 100, not 50, so choice C is wrong. I believe it's transmitted through cat feces, not dog feces, so answer choice B is probably wrong as well. And choice D, that's wrong because toxo usually causes encephalitis, not meningitis. So that leaves us with choice A. It's caused by reactivation of a previous infection. I'll go with that as the right answer. Great logic and excellent approach. Remember that toxo is actually the most common cause of an intracranial mass in patients with HIV. It can cause a headache, fever, altered mental status, and even seizures. Some patients present with focal neurologic deficits, while others, like our patient, presents with a normal exam. Remember that serologic testing is not useful, as there's a high prevalence of antibodies, since latent infection can persist for an entire lifetime. Yeah, and this is something to definitely keep high on your radar in the severely immunocompromised population, as those with a CD4 less than 100 have a 30% chance of reactivating the infection once they've reached this state. If you do come across toxoplasmosis, it's treated with pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and folinic acid. All right, enough toxo. Let's go on to the last one. The wording here is a bit tricky, so listen carefully to the question stem. A woman suffers from an acute attack of vertigo, nausea, and vomiting. You suspect viral labyrinthitis. Which of the following medications is the best choice in treating the vertigo? Is it A, acyclovir, B, fenteramine, C, prednisolone, or D, prochlorperazine? In acute bouts of viral labyrinthitis, standard therapy is with rest, hydration, antiemetics, vestibular depressants, and corticosteroids. So choice C, prednisolone, has to be the right answer. That's correct. This was a tough question, and you really need to pay attention to the wording. The question specifically asked about treating vertigo, not the symptoms of vertigo. 
If it were to be asking about possible therapies for all the symptoms the patient was experiencing, prochlorperazine, an antiemetic, would certainly be a viable answer as it's commonly used to treat nausea and vomiting associated with vertigo. Additionally, although not an option given here, benzodiazepines can also be used. Excellent points. Let's close this episode out with a rapid review. In the PATCH trial, platelets were shown to increase the risk of death in acute intracranial hemorrhage in patients on aspirin. Cocaine chest pain should be treated with benzodiazepines to both relieve vasospasm and decrease sympathetic surge. Beta blockers should be avoided in those with cocaine chest pain due to unopposed alpha agonism. The most common type of migraine is a migraine without an aura. The classic migraine is a slow-onset, unilateral, pulsating headache with moderate to severe intensity. It may be associated with nausea, vomiting, and photo or phonophobia. Migraines affect women twice as often as they affect men. The most typical migraine auras are visual. When actively rewarming a patient, a drop in core temperature is common as cold blood returns from the periphery. In hypothermia, expect a 2% increase in hematocrit for every 1 degree Celsius drop in temperature. Salicylate overdoses are associated with poor fetal outcomes as salicylates readily cross the placenta, causing acidosis, carnicterus, and prematurely closing the ductus arteriosus. The treatment for salicylate overdoses is gastric decontamination, urinary alkalinization, and hemodialysis. Indications for dialysis in a salicylate overdose are altered mental status, renal failure, pulmonary edema, rising levels despite alkalinization, coma, or clinical deterioration. In carbon monoxide poisoning in pregnancy, the threshold for initiating hyperbaric oxygen therapy is lower as the half-life of carbon monoxide is almost five times longer in the fetus than it is in the mother. Toxoplasmosis occurs due to reactivation of a previous infection in patients with HIV with CD4 counts less than 100. It's transmitted through cat feces and can cause encephalitis. Treatment is with pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and folinic acid. Viral labyrinthitis should be treated with rest, hydration, antiemetics, vestibular depressants, and corticosteroids. Benzodiazepines may also be used. All right, so that wraps up Roshcast episode 20. Don't forget to follow us on our new Twitter at Roshcast for high-yield pearls and images related to topics we've covered. Stay tuned for episode 21 coming out soon. <laughs>